Rocket Talk, the Tor.com podcast. My name is Justin Landon, and I'm back. We've been on a little bit of a hiatus here for a few weeks while I dealt with lots of things going on in my life that were uh, distracting me from podcasting, uh, some of which were work-related for Tor.com on the publishing side, and some of which were just strictly personal. But we're back, and we're back with a vengeance with, with one of our favorite guests, Amal El Motar. She is an author and a blogger. You can find her reviews uh, at Lightspeed and NPR uh, and other places. She's been nominated for a Nebula in 2011, and she's nominated again for the Nebula in 2016 for her story, Madeline. And uh, additionally, she won the Locust last year, and she's, she's just a big deal. So welcome back, Amal. Thank you so much. So uh, what's it like to be nominated for a Nebula for a second time? Because like once is is cool. <laughs> I mean, but that's like a, you know, you could just be, it could just be a one hit wonder, but you're yeah. not, you're back. Gosh, it's like if you had two hit wonder, that'd be like amazing. Uh, it's, it's really, it was enormously unexpected and really, really, really great. And I just, it was wonderful. It came at a time, uh, the, the nomination came at a time that things were particularly difficult and stuff. Uh, and so it was really a tremendously appreciated validation of like, oh, okay, yes, I have done a thing and it is good and people are telling me that and that feels nice. So uh, I'm I'm really grateful for it. And yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. Is this the story that you wrote last year that you thought was going to get nominated? If, if something was going to, it would be that one. Because didn't you write another one that people were talking about too, Pockets or? Yes, I did write Pockets. Um, It's like, yeah, I mean, of the two of them, I definitely think that Madeleine is, more ambitious and it was a lot harder to write uh so and i always tend to think that the things that are harder to write are the ones that um i think tend to get more well that's not necessarily true people are i mean people will like what they like and there's absolutely no correlation i have found between <laughs> the things that are my favorite things that i've written and the things that uh that that people have liked most um like like the truth about owls won the locus award um but the story that I was absolutely proudest of that I wrote that year was um, uh, The Lonely Sea in the Sky. Uh, it was my story for Women Destroy Science Fiction um, for that Lightspeed issue. And like, I'm pretty sure like no one read that story. It just, it, it didn't, um, it never made it online. And so I, I don't think anyone beyond the sphere of Women Destroy Science Fiction read it or, or anything. Or if they did, maybe they just didn't like it. But anyways, it was just, uh, I, I never really saw a commentary of it particularly. And whereas Truth About Owls, everyone was like, oh my God, this story. And I was like, oh, I mean, I liked it. I, I like that story too. But uh, the one that really kind of, I felt like I, I sort of pulled out of the depths of me was was uh, The Lonely Sea in the Sky. Um, so in, in the case of Madeleine and, and Pockets, um, I, yeah, I definitely thought Madeleine was the, the more like, I mean, I think of Pockets as kind of a warm hug as a story. Um, and it's, it's really surprised me again, like how many people have had really, really strong reactions to it. Um, and it's been really heartening to me that like something can be sort of small and warm and kind and not ambitious and, and not actually a, like a huge uh, like idea piece or whatever and still move people and still touch people. So I've, I've really liked seeing that. But but of the two of them, I definitely thought that like if Medlen, if, if, if one of them were to be singled for praise, that Medlen would be the one. So we have tried to do this podcast for a while. In fact, we recorded half of this podcast, I don't know, maybe two months ago. Uh, and then we had some some technical issues that night. It was the night of the Grammys. That's what it, it was. The night of the Grammys. 
the raison d'être of the podcast was that we were going to instantly react to the fact that the Grammys had screened the uh, opening number from Hamilton. And we were just going to kind of melt all over like the fact that this happened. And we totally did. And then uh, my rural internet, I think actually my electricity period uh, just kind of vanished. It just crapped out completely. And and that was bad. And uh, And then we couldn't actually pick up that thread for weeks and weeks. <laughs> yes. And I think at the time, I mean, several days later, we think we had both decided that we could do better anyway. Like maybe we had not encapsulated our thoughts as well as we might have wanted to. So Hamilton, the musical, which I don't think we need to explain a whole lot. I think by now, most people are at least aware that it exists and what it is if they haven't listened to it yet. I think there are a few people in the world that have not heard uh, the entire track, but you know, there are there at this point a, a lot of contrarianism has set in, and so there are people like John Scalzi, bless him, hi John, uh, who is like I'm in the control group, and you know, ah, I, I must never listen to Hamilton because oh no, uh, what if I succumb or something? I don't know. But um, so I, and it's a perfectly legitimate choice. Uh, you know, you don't have to expose yourself to the 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 the, the now thing, the current thing, the thing that is the thing that everyone's talking about. Um, so but. But I actually do think that there are some people, uh, certainly I've met people, or I at this point I can genuinely not tell if they're trolling me or not. They might just be trolling me. But it seems to be genuine. Sometimes people on Twitter will still be like, so this Hamilton that you keep talking about, what is it exactly? And and I try to just react to this with, let me just just as as sincerely as possible, it is a musical. Hamilton is the hottest ticket on Broadway presently. It's sold out forever, uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, it's a musical about, uh, one of the founding fathers of the United States of America, Alexander Hamilton. Um, and the, uh, things about it that are notable are that it is, um, it contains a lot of hip hop, uh, a, a mishmash of a lot of different musical genres. Um, and it's the, the cast is almost entirely people of color and very deliberately so, uh, which means that all of the rhetoric in the show that is spoken by, uh, all of the rhetoric around liberty and freedom and, and all that sort of stuff, which historically was spoken by white slave owners, uh, is now spoken by people of color and is sort of dovetails with a lot of rhetoric from the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, and all sorts of stuff like that. So it's just sort of inherently subversive at the same time that it's recognizing all of these elements in Alexander Hamilton's life that make him a really good uh, figure for this sort of intersection of a bunch of different, very current issues like immigration and cultural mosaics and assimilation and various things like that. So yeah, that, that, that's what Hamilton is. If you don't know what Hamilton is, um, it's also just fantastic. And most people who are obsessed with it are obsessed with it via the original cast recording as opposed to the Broadway show, because the Broadway show is very, very difficult to actually get to see. Um, and, you know, tickets at this point, the resale, like the, it's sold out forever from the venue, but the resale tickets can go for as little as $700 and as much as, God, I think I saw a ticket for like $2,500. Um, so, you know, it's hard <laughs> to get to it. Uh, so a lot of people are instead going to uh, experience it via the original cast recording, which is phenomenal. It is. And I would re just so people know, if you are interested in listening to it, I 
get it off Amazon Prime, where if you're a Prime member, the cast recording is available for free. It's also on Spotify, um, and it's uh, also, I, th I think you can get most of the tracks on YouTube. Uh, and if you look, if you want to get like the kind of amazing annotated lyrics experience, uh, you can go to genius.com and look at like the annotations there. Uh, and most of the annotations will have a link to a recording of the song. So you can uh, kind of have that experience of it too. And I mean, I think that the way that I did it certainly was to actually, no, I'll, I'll hang on to it. But there was definitely like a process of absorbing absolutely everything that I could about this musical, partly in lieu of actually getting to see the musical. Uh, so it just became like this, this, this obsession with, there's like a, a closed Facebook group um, called uh, let's obsessively talk about Hamilton, uh, which you kind of come to join after uh, you have exhausted all of the other places to absorb information about Hamilton and the cast and, and their shenanigans and whatever. Uh, then you kind of go there and you take it a step farther. <laughs> and anyway, yeah. So Amal is down the rabbit hole. I am so which down. Which is fine. Uh, and, you know, on the contrarian angle, I wanted to be a contrarian. I really did. Like, you know, as pe people started talking about it and, and we were at Confusion back in January, and everybody was all excited <laughs> about it, doing sing-alongs. And I was just oh, kind of yeah. like, whatever. You know, I mean, I like musicals. I mean, I used to listen to them a lot when I was younger. and But, you know, like, I don't really have, I don't know, what is it, three hours or two and a half hours, however long it is, to set aside to listen to this thing. And so mm -hmm. I didn't. And then I got back from Confusion, and I said, all right, you know what, a lot of people I like think this is cool. <laughs> I, had a, I had a work road trip, and I said I was going to listen to it, and I listened to it on the work road trip. And about halfway, you know, um, I can no longer see the windshield because <laughs> I'm a little emotional uh, about the subject matter. And uh, that was tough. But so I look at the contrarians and I'm kind of like, it's cool to be a contrarian for the, for the sake of con contrarianism. What I find interesting, though, is that I don't know anybody who's listened to it having been a contrarian and then not come away at least appreciating what it is. You know, I haven't really heard anybody yeah. listen to it and be like, well, actually, this sucks. Like, I haven't heard that. <laughs> At least I haven't. Sorry. I mean, I'm sure it's out there, but I have not yeah. seen a lot of it. Yeah, I think I think I might know a couple of people who at least publicly seem to hold that opinion for their first listen through. Uh, but I'm not sure if they then like hung on to that. I, I know some people who actually started it and didn't finish it. Um, but I think that that may have also been, you know, circumstance like it really it really requires a road trip of some kind like in my case i have a long commute so um like my my absorption of the musical definitely happened um through just like my daily commute i'd be it was basically my my commute is roughly one disc long so uh, it'd be like one disc on the way out and one disc on the way in and uh and now i know it by heart so it's so there's there's definitely that aspect of it where if you aren't listening to it all through in one shot, uh, then it might be difficult to just kind of dip in and out of. So uh, there's totally that. And like, you know, I think that it's totally possible as well for people to to recognize that it's very, very good, uh, but not for them. Like, I think that there's like I, this is the thing I I'm so I try to be super aware of this because I get very invested in things very quickly sometimes and uh sometimes all the time um i'm i'm and i'm very uh extroverted and and very passionate about the things that i'm passionate about so um i try to be hyper aware of not creating an environment where people feel like they have to like the thing that i like uh or 
I don't know, I'll think less of them or like they're not allowed to not like the thing. I, I So I try to just kind of hedge around sometimes. I, maybe it doesn't seem this way because I am very enthusiastic, but I do try. I do try to hedge around my enthusiasm slightly so so as to not like uh, tread on the feelings of, of people who don't feel the same way. But there's just, I mean, the, the acclaim that this musical has gotten, that the fact that the fact that it is loved by so many very, very, very different groups of people, like people who have absolutely nothing else in common might have this in common, you know, like the, 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 the vast reach of its appeal is so remarkable um, that I think that we can just that I think there is almost a consensus on the fact that it's just an enormous achievement. Like, so I, I think that you're totally right there that just while people may not like like it, I think that it's very difficult for anyone to actually not acknowledge that it's an enormously powerful, brilliant work of of musical theater. Yeah, my reaction to it, and I'm a big sports fan, uh, mm-hmm. and so I, as I was listening to it, and as I neared the end of it, and sort of thought about it as a as a whole concept, it felt very much to me like watching uh, a basketball game hmm. where there's somebody on the floor, you know, LeBron James or Michael Jordan, who is so much better than everybody <laughs> else on the floor. And there's this moment of just observing greatness that comes with uh, watching athletes like that mm-hmm. excel at what they do, where they're, and there's, you know, two or three of them a generation who are that great that they just make everybody else around them look like children mm-hmm. uh, because they're so immensely talented. Yeah. And that's how I felt about Hamilton when I watched it was it was like or listened to it rather because I have not watched it and probably won't for many years. Mm. But uh, as I listened to it, it felt like watching that kind of level of exceptionalism. Um, Mm -hmm. It was like reading that novel that stands above all the others, which I can't even think of a novel that actually does that, uh, Mm -hmm. relatively speaking. But I think that athlete metaphor is probably the closest thing I can come to it. I listened to it and I felt immediately bad for everybody else that was trying to create something creatively. <laughs> I mean, I really did. I was sort of like, God, fuck. Like if you're, if you're sitting at home writing a musical right now and you listen to this, are you, are you just packing it in? Are you just like, oh, shit, I'm never going to do anything that great. Or does it inspire you to be like, oh my God, that's so great. I, I want to make something that great. And I think it probably depends on what kind of person you are. But I think yeah. that's the kind of reaction it engenders in creatives. Well, certainly, I think if you were trying to write a musical about a founding father, you're probably a bit fucked. But like, um, actually, no, even then, maybe not. Because I think that uh, what Hamilton's also done is engendered an enormous amount of interest in this time period and in in like this time period in America specifically. Um, like I do see people, like people who listen to, um, like, you know, falling down the rabbit hole of Hamilton will some, sometimes entail, for instance, reading Ron Chernow's biography. Of Guilty the, the, as charged. Yes. Right? I'm currently reading it. It's very long and very slow, but I'm working on it. And how, how do you feel about squares with your experience of the, like, uh, do, do you feel like the musical is kind of informing your reading such that something that you might not have enjoyed as much before is now made more lively because you can imagine like David Diggs, uh, you know, saying things or. Yeah. It, it's interesting though. The things that I want to know more about are actually pretty scarce in the, in the, in the biography. So like, I really want to know more about his childhood. Like, I think it's fascinating, but they're just, it, the record of it isn't there. Right. So it's actually pretty glossed over in the biography. I mean, it's just it's just really just the first couple of chapters in the very mm. beginning. 
Um, and it, I mean, it very matches almost identically to, it doesn't, the musical gives you almost everything that the biography gives you in terms of, you know, like high level information. Right. Um, but the other things about some of the relationships and some of the timings and, you know, the big thing, the big theme in the musical or one of the big themes, I mean, there's like a thousand themes. One of the big themes in the musical is this notion of, you know, Burr being a opportunist and somebody who is just all about himself and wants to advance himself. And, uh, Hamilton being more about these ideals and, you know, willing to martyr himself at a moment's notice. And some of that's in the, in the biography, but it doesn't come across as overtly. I mean, you can see where, um, Lin-Manuel Miranda was like, okay, I need to, I need to enhance this a little bit for narrative purposes. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's sort of interesting to observe. Oh yeah. One of the big differences, I think, um, that, that, that Miranda's commented on, uh, is the fact that like the whole like one of the most emotionally potent uh aspects of the musical for me is um is Angelica's arc is is the re- relationship between Angelica and Eliza uh who are you know just, it's so I think I I can't remember if I've spoken about this before on Rocket Talk or not but uh getting to see sisters like loving sisters represented in media is so rare for me and I, I I'm I'm disproportionately affected by it completely like it, it it's a huge huge button um for me uh, I, my relation my relationship with my sister is one of the most um sort of profound and nourishing things in my life um and she is absolutely one of the most important people in my life and to get something recognizing that so beautifully and so succinctly and, and powerfully uh was huge for me so uh in in the musical you get um like the, the the first part of the musical that made me actually the first time that my experience of listening to it was um i was uh visiting uh max gladstone and steph neely in uh in boston and uh they were like you should listen to this thing uh and they they just put it on and I was listening to it and reading the lyrics at the same time, because some of it goes by very quickly, especially in the first few numbers. And I was like, wow, this is great. And then, uh, then I got to Satisfied, uh, which is Angelica's big number in the first act, uh, in which she's revealing that she, um, that like her sister has, she's, she's giving this toast at her sister's wedding to Hamilton. Um, and then there's this sort of introspective moment into her own feelings and, uh, it, it, it turns out that she's in love with Hamilton, but she loves her sister more and she wants to step aside because she loves her sister and wants to like, you know, give her sister everything. And, and it was this huge shock to me to realize that in reality, like, Angelic is already married at that point in time. Uh, she's, uh, so like the, the whole, and the whole thing about, um, in that song, Insatisfied, where she go, she goes, uh, I'm a girl in a world in which my only job is to marry rich. My father has no son, so I'm the one who has to social climb for one and so on. Like, the, she had loads of siblings, like, who were boys. <laughs> so that, that, that just was absolutely not true that she, like, it was just this, this thing, this, this chosen thing for dramatic purposes that she was going to, you know, she had to be the one to marry rich and stuff. But no, that wasn't true. So like, just one of those, that would just bold me over because it was so integral to, this fantastic portrayal of this character uh and i was like oh no that's just completely untrue but emotionally so real <laughs> so right yeah. yeah the the your reaction to satisfied is is my reaction to dear theodosia oh god and yeah. kind of for this for a similar reason in that i don't know that we get to see all that often and it's interesting the uh burr's perspective is much more meaningful to me than hamilton's 
perspective oh, yes. in that song. Now, although I have both a son and a daughter, the the part that Burr sings to his daughter about how he wants all these things for her mm-hmm. that are not the things that men back then wanted for their daughters, typically, yeah. right? Like yeah. he wanted her to have an education and to be independent yeah. and to have, which is actually, from what I gather, historically accurate. Yeah, he was uh, a friend of Mary Wollstonecraft. Right. Uh, and apparently, like, uh, Theodosia, like, went and stayed with Wollstonecraft. I think, like, they had, they, they definitely had some contact with each other. And I believe he introduced a bill to give women the right to vote. I think he may have been one of the first to do so. I think yeah, I like, read that. He, yeah. He was like a for real feminist, <laughs> like by modern standards, like certainly more feminist than many men in politics are today. Uh, so, but, but I don't think we get to see that often where a father is, you know, we often get like the shotgun on the doorstep type father yes. portrayal, which yeah. has its own thing um, yeah. and not necessarily how I want to raise my daughter. So right. this idea of of him aspiring um, to turn the keys of this country over to his daughter Mm-hmm. I thought was incredibly powerful for me because that's what I want for my daughter, you know? Um, yeah. And for that reason, I guess we see a lot of Hamilton and Philip about when we see that in media all the time about mm-hmm. uh, a father wanting his son to aspire to that, but not often the other way. So that's absolutely right. And like that, dear Theodosia, like I, I love, like I was, I was so bowled over when I heard it, but it, that also has the distinction of being the song that, my sister first cried at, <laughs> uh, like, cause again, like I, I, I fall into my enthusiasms, like, you know, like a thunderclap. I just, if I, if I love a thing, it's not a, it's not a slow thing. It's like, no, I, I immediately love this thing and I immediately love it completely. And I must just like absorb it completely immediately. And, um, as I've discovered, that's not the way that a lot of people come to their enjoyment of things. So, um, I tried to push Hamilton on my family a lot, a lot, a lot, very quickly. And my sister was very resistant to this and would often get annoyed with me for like, just kind of going on and on about it and quoting it constantly. And then at some point, like I, I, part of my, my, my forcing them to listen to it involved, like, getting it for my brother-in-law for his birthday uh and (laughs) you will listen to the thing um and then uh she was listening to it in the car and dear theodosia came on and she was pregnant at the time and she just like burst into tears and she was like oh okay fine i'm gonna listen to this thing and now she loves it fully as much as i do and i'm i'm delighted by that and we can like a huge part of my wanting other people to love it is so other people will sing it with me. Um, and so, yeah, so she does that now and that's great, but it's, it's so true. It's just so wonderful and rare to, to get to like, to see something that's so honest about parenthood. You know, it's like, um, the, the, the musical that I'm most reminded of in really sort of odd ways uh whenever i think of hamilton is um into the woods uh sometimes into the woods because you know there there's that song children never listen and stuff like there are just these these moments of of really real really real i'm such a writer um just <laughs> these these moments of enormous affect uh to do with situations as they're felt as opposed to situations how they're commonly represented in media you know like it's really easy it's really easy to fall into the lazy, awful, annoying representations of human relationships as they are in media. So, you know, battle of the sexes kind of nonsense in, in rom-coms or, uh, 
sisters who have a stupid, bitter, poisonous rivalry between them or something, uh, or parents who have dysfunctional relationships with their children only exclusively because uh, like the dysfunction is the only thing that gets portrayed because there's this kind of uh, premise that's assumed that, well, obviously parents and children love each other. And so the only thing, the only drama that we can get from the representation of parents and children is that of antagonism and dysfunction. And you just kind of assume the love. You never actually show it. Um, and so when you get something that actually shows the love, that actually shows this, this, this beautiful, vulnerable, like that, and what, what happened, the, the part of Dear Theodosia that, um, devastates me the most is when, uh, when Burr says, uh, I fall apart and I thought I was so smart, you know, like this just kind of, these are, these are two men who feel like they have known, like they know absolutely everything about themselves and what they want from the world. And then, they become parents and just that, this line there's so much more inside me now is so simple and so real um and i'm not a parent like i i'm i'm only experiencing this by proxy because my sister recently made me an aunt uh so but all the things things that you've you've mentioned to me before justin about like how you can't watch things where there's any kind of harm befalling children uh and stuff i i'm i'm completely in that now like i completely feel that uh and just like being being an aunt to my sister's child makes me feel like like there are just enormous universes that I'd never considered before and uh and there's so much more inside me now and I thought I was so smart and, <laughs> and they just kind of those those lines just absolutely resonate for me yeah what I love about that that whole concept of um of parenthood in this as well though is that the doubling of it is that Hamilton is also experiencing this parenthood with the country Yes. And how and he's forced to choose, mm -hmm. in, at least at times, um, if not all the time, between those two desires um, and makes the wrong choice a lot of times, oh. I yes. think, uh, yes. as it turns out, which is particularly hard to listen to. But that's the thing is like he makes the wrong choice. But then it's also when you look at it, you know, from from like a, I don't know, 200 years later, right? Well, what if if he hadn't made those choices, what what would the impact have been on the country? Mm -hmm. I mean, as he was clearly one of the leading forces behind the system of government that has sustained the United States for as, as long as it has, it presents those like really tough choices. Mm -hmm. Although we 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 impeach him for his personal foibles mm -hmm. uh, repeatedly throughout the musical, I don't think we ever necessarily he doesn't ever become a villain for the choices that he's made. Really. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Um I you know and I think part of the reason for that is that okay, so uh, <laughs> there's um I, I don't know if you experienced this trajectory of 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 listening to the um to the the album or not but um the way I did it was I listened to it all through and then was so devastated by the second act that for a while I only listened to the first act over and over again. Uh, and, um, and just like, you know, learned all those songs by heart and, and was baffled by my suddenly caring at all about the American Revolution and its outcome. As a Canadian, this is sort of irrelevant to me, except for the fact that like all the Samuel Seaburys of the world came to live in Ontario. Uh, but, so one of the songs that I kept skipping and kept not listening to was Say No to This, uh, the song where Hamilton uh, cheats on his wife with Maria Reynolds. And the thing that 
like the the thing that really makes that song, which I have since like listened to and actually come to appreciate a lot, is the fact that you've got this enormous chorus of people saying, no, don't do this thing, which the, you know, the audience can really relate to. But you've also got Hamilton self-flagellating and go like the, the more I listened to it, the more I realized there were all these wonderful undertones of just Miranda's tortured voice saying things like, uh, like while, um, Maria is like, you know, doing these beautiful vocal exercises that, that can obscure quite a lot. You've got Hamilton underneath that going, uh, how could I do this? And I don't want you. I don't want you and stuff like that. And just this, like this, this drip self-loathing and contempt for his own actions, uh, in a way that is really wonderful, uh, and, and really kind of keeps you on his side because as much as we, the audience have felt betrayed by his betrayal, we're also kind of, Oh, certainly I am. <laughs> I, I'm glad to see that he, he feels like he has betrayed himself as well. And that's that I think that kind of keeps him from outright villainy too. that like this is a moment where he has actually betrayed his principles and betrayed promises and and vows and stuff like that. And some notion of like self-punishment in some ways, like uh, if you the way it's framed within the story is right. Like he decides to not go see his family for the summer. (sighs) Yes. Including Angelica, who's come all the way across the the country or the world to to be there. And yes. he says no to that, and he knows that by saying no, he's making a, a decision that he that is wrong or is yeah. selfish or is necessary in his mind, but he knows that's not what he wants to do, right? And so is he, I think in some way the way it's framed, it's almost like he's punishing himself for the mistake, or he's self-sabotaging mm-hmm. is the word I'm looking for. Yes, uh, absolutely. Sort of, so I don't know. Absolutely. And actually, some a, a few people have pointed out uh, all over the internet that um, everything is fine in the play until he says Macbeth, at which point everything goes wrong. Uh, so he's writing a letter to Angelica going, you know, uh, I trust you'll understand the reference to another Scottish tragedy without my having to name the play. And then he goes and names the fucking play. Right. <laughs> it's like, he's, I mean, admittedly, he's naming like the main character. But uh, but it's after that point that everything starts to go horribly, horribly wrong. Um and and there is a sense in which uh M- maria is also supposed to be a kind of awful amalgam of both eliza and angelica uh because in her song you've got these moments where there all these callbacks to helpless uh to to eliza's uh song from the beginning where she first falls in love with hamilton so you've got in say no to this um uh you've got all these bits where she, where Maria is echoing lines from Eliza's song, where she's saying, uh, this one's mine, sir, you know, when they get to her apartment. Uh, and, uh, and she says helpless, uh, over and over in the song in the same way. There are all these like shout outs to it. Uh, and it's the whole song starts with him going, longing for Angelica, missing my wife. That's when Miss Maria Reynolds came into my life, et cetera. Um, and, uh, so yeah, this is kind of like no, he's made the wrong decision, and now he's trying to kind of take that back by making more wrong decisions, um, which kind of becomes the pattern of of the rest of the play. He tries to fix the fact that he's being blackmailed by getting ahead of the story and writing the Reynolds pamphlet, which only makes things worse. Which kind of almost directly in the play anyway seems to lead to his son's duel and all of you know like this kind of cavalcade of unfortunate events takes place um in the wake of that yeah i'm not to that point in the biography i'll be interested to see how that is portrayed in 
mm-hmm. in the Cherno biography because I am curious about the timing of all that, you know, and how yeah. and how it actually uh, sort of spun out, and of course how it contributed to his son's death, which is mm-hmm. uh, like you the the th- a song I have never listened to a second time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I listened to it once. I have not listened to it again. Uh, it's very hard to listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, it, in part because Hamilton gives his son advice uh, about <laughs> how to handle the duel, which is which is it's a, stupid advice. It's it, the worst advice. And yet, it's advice that we give our children all the time, which is yeah. don't don't hit first. Don't yeah. don't retaliate. Don't hit back. Um, uh, this idea that uh, that that turn the other cheek. I mean, that kind of stuff, stuff we get stuff we say to our children all the time. Yeah. And, and in this case, it's, it's bad advice, but it's also Hamilton, once again, trying to teach his son to be morally upright, which is ironic, <laughs> um, considering what has happened just before. And the fact that he and his mother, at least at this point are in non-speaking terms. Mm-hmm. Um, but and, I mean, so at the end of the, at the end of the day, his son dies. And, and although it is not his fault, he, he can, take all the blame on himself for this advice that he's given his son. Yeah. Which is, it's just crushing. It is so, so crushing. And everything about that, like that, that song is the culmination of so many uh, musical threads as well. There have been so many, there, there's so much foreshadowing to it. Um, musically, it's devastating uh, to, to recognize like the, the, the build up to it. And then there's, there's a moment oh, in the, the counting, song, right? The, 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 all the counting. Yeah. Yeah. There's all the counting, but there's also specifically, um, uh, specifically his, uh, like Philip's theme. Um, and, and that's like, you know, that, that's, that's following the, uh, his introduction in the second act, uh, where it's like, you know, counting, et cetera, um, which is totally mirroring the, the 10 dual commandments. Right. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, you know, um, so you've got that that level going on, but you've also got um, you've also got heartbeats. You've also got uh, so you you've got like when when God when Philip is dying. My sister pointed this out again. I give her credit for this. When Philip is dying, and he's what, only at the point when he starts talking to his mother, um, you start hearing a heartbeat, uh, just like this 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 low thudding. Da-dum behind and it's slowing down um and as so he starts like counting with his mother um and at some point like midway through her count the heartbeat stops and that's like the point where she goes sets with neuf and it's silent and it's like oh god i'm tearing up it's just like it's it's overwhelming it's just there's so many levels and layers to it um that just i mean there's so much genius just in the macro structure of the narrative and what it's doing in terms of its place in society, uh, and, and the things that it's playing with and subverting and the arguments that it's making. But on a micro level, all of the self-referential moments in it, all of the, um, the, the musical, uh, jokes and callbacks, all of the callbacks to hip hop, um, and to other musicals. And, um, I can't remember who, like some article that I, uh, that I read referred to, uh, Miranda's, um, enormous Catholicity, uh, like the, his, his, his ability, his magpie ability to like, you know, to just imbue this one work with so much of his listening and reading and, uh, and, and all of these different things, um, is, it's, it's just, 
it's it's gen it's mind boggling. It's it's overwhelming and and sublime and wonderful. But like the the fact every time I listen to it, I hear something new, and I have listened to it a preposterous number of times. Like you could do the math on it and basically be like, I've listened to the whole album at least at least once a day since uh, the middle of October, um, and <laughs> then you, holy I, shit, yeah. I'm not even, yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's a condition. It's, it's a problem. It's, it is. And like, I, I know actually like literally earlier today was tweeting about how I'm slowly listening to music that's not Hamilton. Um, and it's not because I, it wasn't any deliberate decision. It was just that at some point, um, it, this isn't, this isn't even hyperbole. Like I'm, I'm slightly ashamed as I'm saying this. It isn't even hyperbole. At some point, it became kind of the organizing principle of my life in as much as if, I were in a difficult situation, if, if something was hard, if something was troubling, if something was difficult, I found myself like humming parts of the musical to myself. And just the fact of like humming it to myself, the, like this, the cued, this kind of relaxing <laughs> or comfort. It was like this, this Pavlovian reaction to the musical, just, just, just like feeling myself inside something that I knew that well. Um, like, it's like comfort reading, you know, except with music inside my head. Um, and, and, and anyway, it's just like, I, when I say I know it by heart, um, it's like, not like, it's not just the lyrics. It's that I, I actually, at this point, I don't want this to sound pretentious. I don't mean it to. I just like, at this point, I don't need to hear it anymore to, I don't need to listen to it to hear the music in my head. Like I have, it, it's just kind of all there. So there are times when I'm sitting in the car and, not listening to it, but just hearing it in my head or like sometimes singing it to myself or whatever. I think it's so interesting to frame Hamilton as comfort listening because, yes. <laughs> because hip hop or rap as a genre is all of it, it, at least by my observation, I'm by no means an expert either in the, the musical medium or the culture from which it comes, but mm -hmm. because the, because there's something discomforting about that kind of the, the musical style at times or the lyrical You're styles. Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing about that. I think that it, there's a comfort that comes from catharsis, right? Um, and I think that's what it is. I mean, you know, I, 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 have you never, I mean, have you never listened to, you know, have you never been like really, I don't know if this is you, but like, surely the, this is a familiar cultural sort of meme that if you're furious about something, you listen to angry music and it makes you feel better, right? Like, um, so, you, you know, you can listen to heavy metal or, uh, like hard rock or something. And you, if you're, and it becomes, it kind of cues up this feeling of relief and, and satisfaction, uh, and catharsis basically, um, especially if you're angry. Um, and so I think there's, it's worth asking, you know, who is hip hop on dis disquieting or discomforting for, uh, cause I mean, I, I feel like. Certainly, I mean, for me, the, 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 the wrapped parts in Hamilton are like the, the, the pleasure that I get from them, uh, and the comfort that I get from them is a falling into a rhythm and a pattern, uh, that, that just releases things, uh, in me. Um, like, God, I don't know. Can I even make this come? It's like, like dry needling. <laughs> I don't know. Have you ever had a muscle dry needled? I have not. Um, Okay. It's amazing. Um, it's in, in that it's, um, so I, I'm, I'm going through some physiotherapy for a rotator cuff impingement at the moment. So it's like, there's, 
there there's just the this this technique where um similarly to acupuncture some like a physician will put a needle into your muscle and um but unlike acupuncture will wiggle that needle around inside the muscle uh prompting it to twitch and release certain chemicals so that it releases its tension and then kind of um basically floods the muscle with the uh with i mean i guess lactic acid amongst other things because like what you feel afterwards is literally like delayed onset muscle soreness when you exercise it's exactly the same feeling um that the muscle has been worked out uh and exercised and you know has those micro tears in it um so and and it does this you know this is for like when your muscles have been shortened or over tightened through misuse and stuff like that this is a technique to do that so i think you can probably make the comparison with hip-hop in that like being dry needled is not a pleasant experience necessarily, but the relief and the release of it, um, is, is enormous. Uh, and it's like, even when you're still feeling the kind of raw pain, um, like that, that soreness in the muscle from it having been worked out, it's still a kind of relief. So, I mean, I think that there's probably that, uh, in it as well. Um, I mean, I just, uh, talking like I, I um I experienced uh Beyonce's lemonade uh this this past like a week I guess a week ago at this point when did it drop when it dropped anyway um and uh and it's very very angry and it's wonderful oh god it's so wonderful and my absolutely my favorite tracks of it are the angriest ones are the 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 furious ones where like like and, and to the point where I I get actually hugely pissed off if I accidentally start streaming the the the, the clean quote unquote clean version. Like I'm like, what is the point of bleeping out every instance of Beyonce cussing in this furiously angry song? Like how can that bleeping be anything but a horrible irritant uh in something that is supposed to be like release and and as much as there's a lot of high emotion and passion in Hamilton uh, and a lot of callbacks to especially like hip hop from the nineties, um I don't, I mean, I don't think that it has the same kind of anger and confrontation necessarily, although like it, it, it's referencing it, but it also doesn't contain a lot of it, except in like when I first, the first time I heard my shot, um, there, like I, I, I absolutely saw it as an, like an anthem of revolution and stuff. Uh, and, and I mean, that one, that's the song that explicitly references Black Lives Matter. There's a moment where it says, uh, this is not the moment, it's the movement, um, where all the hungriest brothers with something to prove went, you know, and it goes on. And it's like, it, it's furious and phenomenal. And I, and I absolutely love that about it. Um, but it's not, I don't think it, I get like the, the appeal of Hamilton is so broad that I think that you kind of have to look at it and say, well, it doesn't necessarily contain that same element of confrontation that a lot of hip hop does. Uh, I think it's, it comes at it sideways and it incorporates it. You can read the amount of confrontation into it that you want. I think, I mean, I think yeah. depending on your perspective yeah, uh, and the privilege from which you happen to be listening to it or not, mm -hmm. uh, you're able to sort of draw different levels out of it. And the beauty of it is that mainstream middle America can mm -hmm. listen to this and, and enjoy it on sort of just a very surface level on the fact it's a cool story about the American revolution and it's neat. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and it, 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 it can appeal to that audience all the way down to like, you know, with things you've talked about, like the black lives uh, matter movement. Mm -hmm. 
it, it appeals to that whole spectrum and everybody's taking something out of it, which mm-hmm. I think is why it's become such a phenomenon and yeah. why I think it's become somewhat of a cultural um, hotbed in a lot of ways as well, because you are seeing these different uh, people that are consuming it mm-hmm. and talking about it in public. And you you run into this inevitable debate of like this this part of it is not speaking to you and like but that's the part that really matters and I think there's some inherent conflict in that which is healthy and mm-hmm. I think yeah yeah absolutely I think it's like it it engenders a lot of conversation which I am always delighted to see Miranda in particular responding to in very specific ways like you know at some point oh God was this I can't remember if it was in the New York Times or not. Um, but I mean, at some point, some jerks in New York were like, oh, Hamilton is racist because it excludes white people. And it was like, really? Like, really? Are you doing this? Are, are you seriously? Like, it, just the idea that, you know, this, this one show, <laughs> uh, manages to take off with roles for people of color. And let, let us just open a bracket here to say, like, how, fucking amazing it is that there's going to be this show that is going to be able to tour forever and have local productions forever that will guarantee an enormous amount of roles for people of color to shine in and that everyone will be able to like you know get to play their washington and their lafayette and their uh and and jefferson meh jefferson but anyway (laughs) um you know like that everyone will will get that there are so many people who are going to have these opportunities that didn't have them before and that some asshole can sweep in and be like but hang on why can't white people have a piece of the hamilton pie and it's like just could you just could you just like become aware of context for like 10 seconds just long enough to feel incredibly ashamed for having even attempted to make this point like could just could that just happen (laughs) and could you just then Shut up about it forever, basically, is what I want to say to these people. Yeah, right. If you look at it like that, it's what a, just a tremendous um, benefit to the theater community now to have all of these people that are going to have something on their resume. So yeah. the next time somebody says like, oh, we can't cast you, you don't have, you know, you don't have, you, you've never done this before, you've never had a part before or whatever, like, they, there's a lot more opportunity. This is going to be a show dedicated to helping people build those portfolios and hopefully as they go to other shows and other musicals, it's going to give a more diverse cast everywhere. Exactly. Exactly. And specifically, it's a show that is unlike dozens of other Broadway shows or or other well-known musicals and stuff will not have a leg to stand on uh, in terms of saying, well, we can't cast you for this because it would be historically inaccurate. You know, we can't (laughs) like, no, (laughs) like middle fingers up. Remember that show that made a lot more money than your show? Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. You know, it's just, God, there, there are so many rhetorical levels on which Hamilton just kind of puts paid to, to just, just terrible narratives. Um, and the idea that someone could come into that and, and be like, but what about white people? It's just so, so painfully laughable. Um, and yet, you know, there are, there are still, you know, hand wringing people who kind of want to take that seriously. Like, oh, but, but, but shouldn't I, shouldn't I be allowed to? Cause I like, I really love the show and shouldn't I be allowed to? And it's like, just again, just think about it. Think about it a little bit. Just, right. just. <laughs> so, yeah. What's so interesting to me about all of this, and we've talked about a lot of different things in here, <laughs> is that I actually believe that from its inception, Lin-Manuel Miranda knew 
all of this. He knew that he was doing all of this, right? Oh, for sure. Like it all feels, sometimes you see great work come around Mm -hmm. and it's sort of a happenstance that it hits the zeitgeist, right? Or that Mm -hmm. it, or that it accomplishes all the things that it accomplishes. In this case, it totally feels like the creator knew he was establishing a musical that was going to be a huge hit and was going to give people of color roles for the next 20 years. He mm-hmm. knew that he was writing somebody who was going to speak to the Black Lives Matter movement. He knew he was going to speak to somebody that was going to be this. All of this stuff was super intentional. From and mm-hmm. I think that's amazing because um, we always hear creators, you know, authors, and and always say like, "Well, it's neat that you saw that in there, but I didn't huh. really intend that." Yeah. Um. Like in this case, like it feels like, oh yeah, that's exactly what I meant to do. <laughs> it's just, that's neat. Yes. Yes. And I mean, you, and you see that reflected in his interviews. You see that reflected in like all the kinds of commentary that he makes. I just, I, I really like, you know, I, I, without, you know, he's, oh gosh, he's, I wanted to say he's a national treasure, but I think he's also an international treasure, basically, because uh, he's just um, so, his, the, 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 the presentation of, of his I mean, I, I don't know the guy. He seem, obviously seems super, super genuine. I don't want to make any assumptions and stuff, but his Twitter feed is a thing of beauty and joy and gold. And it is so wonderful to see a creator of something engage so joyfully with community and also take stands, like stands about the thing that he has created. Um, and like that he, you know, I, I think he was, a, he had a, an NPR interview, I think, where, um, the interviewer wanted to talk about how he cast minorities in all the roles. And he said, hang on, why are you using the word minority? You know, that, that's going to be, that, that's, you know, that's going to look super dated in like 20 years when we're the majority and things like that. You know, like, uh, he's, he's really kind of unapologetic in a lot of ways about the project and super aware for sure. Um, and I think that that awareness is actually part of what makes Hamilton work the way it does. Uh, that, that it's, that, that, I mean, the fact that people can take what they want from it, but that, you know, the fact people taking what they want from a thing can usually mean that the thing is bland and inoffensive. The fact that people can take what they want from a thing and the things that they take from it are furiously at odds with what other people have taken from it is like incredible is is genius um mm-hmm. is uh it is just fantastic there's something else there that i that occurs to me and it touches on athletics again slightly but um mm-hmm. i don't know if you you may not have been aware of this not living in the united states but um so we've had some athletes that have been hugely important for um civil rights um jackie robinson obviously Muhammad Ali, obviously. Mm. And then we got into a period in the 80s and 90s when, I don't know how old Lin-Manuel Miranda is, but I think he's probably... He's 30. He's he's mid-30s. Mid-30s. Okay, so he's my age. Yeah, I think Um, he's like 36. Much older than me. Uh, (laughs) So so he experienced this as I did. So like Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player of all time, um, famously avoided discussing civil rights and and equality. Mm. And it's something he just did not engage in and received a fair amount of criticism for hmm. uh, Tiger Woods in the nineties um, received much of that same criticism. And one of, again, one of the biggest themes in this is like uh, Miranda functionally saying like, that's not okay. Right. Mm-hmm. That like uh, it was not okay. Ha- Hamilton judges Burr for exactly that. Right. That, yes. like, it's not okay to just sit yeah. on the sidelines and let things that are wrong happen mm-hmm. uh, when you have the power to stop it or to, yeah. or maybe not to stop it, but to make a difference, to make an impact. 
And what I love about this is that there's that commentary in the musical. And uh, interestingly, Burr, we studied and we fought and we killed for the notion of a nation we now get to build. Yeah, right. That, part, that was good. And uh, actually, in recent years, we've seen athletes become much more outspoken. I mean, uh, mm. in the NBA, they they wore you know I can't breathe T-shirts um, under their uniforms for games. And but then Miranda, given an opportunity, very recently um, did so with Puerto Rico. Absolutely. And I yeah. thought I just think that is so tremendously powerful. And now he has this opportunity and he's he's jumping all over it, right? Like he's yeah. absolutely embracing it. And I don't know that we would be paying attention to the Puerto Rico issue as much if he hadn't made such a big deal of it. Yeah. And I don't know that Alexander Hamilton would still be on the $10 bill if ha! this uh, musical hadn't been written. And so it's yeah. fascinating to watch. Uh, a work like this, a, a, a silly musical on Broadway, right? Mm -hmm. um, to have this level of cultural significance. I haven't been alive for the history of Broadway, but I don't know that a show has ever had this much of a cultural impact. Yeah, um, I, I just don't know. I, I'm, I, I don't, yeah, I, I don't know either uh, because I, I also don't know the history of Broadway very well. But I, I think that you know you can't ignore the. Um, the, the, the role of the internet in, in doing this and disseminating uh, the. I mean, in because I what has what's been amazing to me has been watching the um the fever of Hamilton move from you know uh, from communities on Tumblr to Twitter to Facebook to suddenly mainstream appeal. I mean, the it's it's won a Pulitzer, like uh, it's it's won a Pulitzer, and it the album is you know the album won a Grammy. Um, it's going to sweep the Tonys, you know, it, like there, there's, there's that side of it, but then there's also, um, the, just the, the, I mean, the, the late night talk shows and stuff like that. Like it's, it's moved from my, the geeky circles that I've seen, um, into the broader mainstream audiences at a pace that is really just exponential um, and incredible. So, I, and that's not something I've seen before. And I think that, you know, media plays a big part of this because people will come to it partly because they're exposed to fanfic communities, right? You know, people, people who have nothing to do with Broadway shows, people who don't. Is there Hamilton fanfic? Oh my God, Justin, do you not know about the Hamilton fanfic? Of course there's Hamilton fanfic. Oh my God. I was reading one. I was reading one before we started talking. Do, do, do. You're in deep, uh, man. I'm in so deep. I am. I am. I am trash. Do you have I the Hamilton? Have you gotten the Hamilton? I have not gotten the Hamilton. See, like engagement with Hamilton that actually requires shelling out a fair amount of money or like turning <laughs> up fair. in New York is difficult for me to accomplish. Although I am going to be in New York from uh, May 26th to 31st uh, for actually a totally different play that starts with H and ends with N and has three syllables. Um <clears throat> Because uh, Hades Town, that uh, is a an amazing um, concept album by Anais Mitchell, uh, that basically tells the story of Orpheus and Eurydice um, via this like setting it in a company town, basically, uh, is is wonderful. And I, I've loved this album for years, and it's been um, produced for the stage. So I'm gonna go see that because the tickets for that only cost <laughs> like. Eighty dollars, right? So, um, <clears throat> so I'm going to go see that and see some friends. And since I'm going to be in New York, I will enter the lottery 
uh, the 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 lottery for you know to to win front row seats for ten dollars or whatever, which is nigh impossible to get, but whatever. Um, and we'll see. Who knows? So maybe I will pick up the Hamel tome then as a souvenir of my having been there or something. But um, hey, we just need to figure out who publishes it. That's to just go go call some of our good friends in publishing to help us. Oh, out. mate, that's true. See, I don't know. I don't. Is that can we do that? Is it not maybe too popular? I don't know. That would be. I don't know. That would be great. I'm sure. I would love I to bet, review I the there, I bet there are some advanced review copies probably sitting around a particular office that they need to unload. <laughs> just a hunch. Oh, that would be good. Hey, maybe, well, if you learn, Justin, I will you look. Hook I will look. It, our our downs our downfall will be if it's an academic publisher, and then we're just kind of probably out of luck. But if it's a fiction publisher, we have a shot. Mm, <laughs> excellent, excellent. I'll look into it. Um, right. So yeah, I assume all of our New York editor friends and author friends are like entering the lottery every day. I would assume. Ha. Well, I I mean, I have it on good authority that at least one uh, tour editor has seen it like six or seven times at this point. Um, wow. All right, so we've talked about Hamilton and how amazing it is, but I want to talk a little bit before we finish up about Hamilton as genre. Um, mm. It's got a bit of an alternate history vibe uh, mm-hmm. in many ways. And so I think it could be genre. There was some agitation out there to try to get it nominated or people talking about hoping it would be nominated for the Hugo. It was not. I put it on my Hugo ballot. <clears throat> I, I, I absolutely I, did. I'm sure a lot of people did. So, uh, so what do you think? Like, is, does Hamilton have a good claim to genreness? I think it absolutely does. Uh, I mean, and I, no, initially this is a knee jerk reaction from me because I feel that I love it with the parts of me that love genre. Um, like I, I don't, I don't tend to fall in love with a thing the way that I fall in love with this if it's not genre. Um, and this is not to say I don't appreciate non-genre things. I absolutely do, but it's very rare for me to fall to to just kind of fall down the rabbit hole, as you've said, about things that aren't genre. Like I feel like I love them with a very specific like organ of squee within myself. Um, and so because I, I, I feel that way towards Hamilton, my first reaction is obviously it's genre, but to actually think about it more, um, rationally, uh, m- more, more unemotionally about it. Um, Nora Jemison wrote a post, uh, making a case for, uh, for it being genre, for it being fantasy. Um, and, uh, and I, I, I won't try to rehash her points. Um, you should absolutely read her blog post, but the, the things that make it fantasy for me, I mean, there's the case of, yes, it being, you can say alternate history in the sense that it's, um, in the sense that it, it doesn't hew closely to history. Like for instance, the Angelica thing that I brought up and, um, and, and little things like that, uh, liberties taken with the history in order to tell the story, but that's straight up historical fiction as well. You could, you could say that any historical fiction does that. To me, the thing that makes it genre is absolutely the experience of it as subversive, um, and alternate in the sense that it's all people of color playing these roles. Uh, to me, it's fantasy in the effect that it has on me that now I genuinely have to struggle to imagine Alexander Hamilton as a white man. I have to, like, I struggle to imagine George Washington as a white man. And I think that that act of, like, just playing with the inside of my head, uh, of thought experiment and of, of subversion and of addressing social realities through the medium of this, uh, this fantasy of, of imagining these, these stock historical characters as people of color. That to me is where the fantasy lies. And I really don't want to shy away 
from saying that. Like, I, I, I think that if this had been a musical with white people in it rapping, it would have been disastrous. I like, there's just, there's no way. Like, it, there's, it would be a gimmicky, ridiculous thing if you just had, like, w- white people running this show and, and telling this story. If, it, like, I, I, it, it might have still, you know, it could have been a, a good in a different way, I guess, if someone white had read Cherno's biography and decided that they really wanted to tell this this musical. But um, and I and you know, white people can absolutely still have the immigrant angle uh, on it, but uh, but the subversiveness of having all of these people of color on stage performing together, um, of having you know, <clears throat> having the Skyler sisters uh, be of different ethnicities and not having that matter, uh, like not having anyone comment on it or uh, to just, you know, take it as read. That to me is is where um, the, the the power of it that feels genre to me, that's where it comes from. Um, by which I mean, I, and I should specify this, I don't mean that it's a fantasy thing that people of different ethnicities are siblings. That's absolutely not what I mean. <laughs> it's the fact that that's allowed to be on a Broadway stage representing these characters who are supposed to be all white. Um, and the fact that instead what you get is a multiracial family or multi-ethnic family um, <clears throat> is is like, that's something that's absolutely real, but that in the context of what the musical is doing, that's where I, I feel it's, it's genre power comes from. Yeah, I will conclude by saying that I think the reason it works for me is genre is I've never read something uh, that is not genre. That's just, or not fantasy or not science fiction that has Mm -hmm. made my mind work in the same way that Hamilton does. Um, Anything I've read mainstream, it it might blow your mind in an emotional way, but it doesn't expand your mind. Uh, It does not expand the possibilities in your mind the way that fantasy or science fiction does. And I think that that's what Hamilton accomplishes. It it, it creates a new range for you to think about what was a very monochromatic um, history. Absolutely. And, and drawing forth as well, the, the, the whole, the, I mean, the whole impetus for writing this in the first place was Miranda saying, this is an immigrant story. This is the story of like, like <clears throat> of someone who came to this country and remade himself. Um, and reading history through this lens, uh, is, is something that is more than just writing historical fiction. To me, that is where the act of writing fantasy and, and science fiction and stuff comes from that that applying of that different lens to something and of generating something so new and so provocatively wonderful uh out of it so yeah well i think that's an excellent conclusion to this episode this long-awaited episode about (laughs) hamilton Uh, that was very dramatic it was a very broadway long long (laughs) wait for hamilton Uh, but this has been awesome um I like that we tied it up here at the end, making it relevant to the uh, to the science fiction and fantasy listeners of Rocket Talk. Uh, even though most of them already love Hamilton, maybe those who don't will give it another shot now that we've uh, couched it as uh, SF and F. Because we are not throwing away our shot. That's right. And neither should anybody else. Exactly. All right. Thanks for coming on, Amal. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. This has been Rocket Talk. Rocket Talk.